Welcome to the Bob Siegel Show podcast on the CGMRadio.com network. Visit CGMRadio.com slash Bob to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. Isn't there a difference between believing in a God who sends evil people to hell and a God who condemns us simply because we don't believe in Jesus? Isn't this an awfully closed-minded idea? Well, my friend, you are asking an excellent question. I do appreciate an opportunity to review this subject every so often. It is, after all, foundational to the theme of my radio show. Now, at the beginning of any kind of inquiry, we should certainly be open to a wide range of possibilities. But sooner or later, everybody closes their minds. Let me say that again. Sooner or later, everybody closes their minds. We always talk like an open mind is a good thing. There's such a thing as an open mind being too open. An open mind has a purpose. We remain open only for a while with the objective of finding what we are looking for, learning new facts, and eventually closing our minds. Whether or not the world rotates around the sun may have been an open question centuries ago. But scientists have long since drawn their conclusions. A student at UC Santa Barbara once accused me of being closed-minded and insisted that if I had an open mind, I could not possibly believe that there was only one way to God, Jesus. And I said, well, well, let me ask you a question. Are you open-minded enough to consider the possibility that there is only one way to God? What? Well, you say you have an open mind. All right, then. Are you open-minded enough to at least ponder the possibility that Jesus may be the only way? Absolutely not. Oh, really? Oh, this is interesting. You can't even consider it? Never. Well, why can't you? Because such a belief is closed-minded. But the consideration of the belief isn't. An open mind says maybe there are a thousand ways to God. Maybe there are two ways to God. Maybe there are no ways to God. Maybe there is only one way to God. That's a truly open mind. So a skeptic listening right now may be thinking, okay, I suppose people should be open enough to consider Jesus, but it is still hard to imagine that Jesus would equate allegiance to himself with the only road into God's kingdom. In fact, you're thinking, let me ask, did Jesus really offer himself as the only escape from hell? I've heard it taught that he never really made such claims, that this is an idea that was developed years later by the church. Well, my friend, that is a very pertinent question because often people express great respect for Jesus himself while denying that he ever commanded his followers to go out and preach the gospel. A student at Mesa Community College in Arizona drove this point home to me once on a sunny afternoon. He says, I think this business of Jesus being the only way to God is the most lame brain, pinheaded, narrow-minded thing I ever heard of. Well, instead of arguing, I politely asked the opinionated student for his appraisal of Jesus himself. He goes, oh, Jesus himself? Oh, no problem there. I think he was a wonderful teacher, a good philosopher, a great humanitarian. I says, oh, I see. Now, do you know where this idea of Jesus being the only way came from? Well, no, I imagine the teaching was developed by churches over the years. No, not really. This idea came from Jesus. Oh, the student was flabbergasted. He had just labeled a wonderful teacher, a fine philosopher, a great humanitarian as a pinhead. 
Now, I would consider it a waste of time to defend a mere church tradition. Remember, a Christian, by definition, is one who follows Christ. There is no point in explaining the narrow nature of Christianity if such teaching were foreign to the founder of our faith. Our need for salvation was the very purpose of Jesus' mission. He said, I'm reading from John 3, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Mysterious words? Absolutely, but their context will shed some light. For the moment, whatever being born again means, it is somehow related to entering God's kingdom. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus equates the entry to God's kingdom with the reception of eternal life. And we do not need to look far into the Gospels to discover the qualification for eternal life. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains in him. Those words come from John the Baptist. John's message and ministry had already been publicly condoned by Jesus, and Jesus himself gave a similar statement in John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Consider as well John 14.6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is Jesus talking about one of many paths to God? Is he acknowledging that each person's religion is beautiful in its own way? Hardly. Those words do not read, I am a truth, a way. They are the truth, the way. Now, with what authority did Jesus speak so boldly? Even his own disciples wanted to know. Toward the end of the Gospel of John, Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, says, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Now imagine following somebody for years because he seems to have such a special insight into spiritual matters. Now, at a quiet, private moment toward the end of his ministry, Jesus lets his disciples in on a little secret. The reason he knows so much about God is that he is God. Can't you just feel the shivers that must have accompanied this incredible conversation? Whatever form and power God the Son had in eternity past, he gave it all up and somehow transformed himself into a real human being. He knew hunger, thirst, pain, and suppressive government rule. Although he never sinned, he was tempted to sin, and the experience gave him a special empathy. It is as though God were saying, I will not ask you to go through anything which I am unwilling to go through myself. After rising from the dead, Jesus returned to heaven to rule with the Father, but although he regained the position of God, he remains in the form of a man for all of eternity, a glorified immortal man, certainly, but still a man." Now, it's true that Jesus is one member of a co-equal trinity, the Godhead, but this mystery does not dilute his divine identity. The other two members, while Jesus was here on earth, retained their position. He lived in obedience to the Father, and he performed miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now then, what is so illogical about God himself saying, Hi, I'm God, and I, God... And the only way to God. 
Well, we'll continue arguing with our rhetorical skeptic here. Rhetorical skeptic says, okay, if Jesus was God, he had the right to say whatever he wanted. But why is he so concerned about mere beliefs? Ladies and gentlemen, the word believe in Greek did not mean mere intellectual assent. That's an English understanding. In Greek, it meant obedience. One is saved by making a decision to obey Jesus. That puts a whole different color on it, doesn't it? Now, it's true that we need his forgiveness, and it's also true that without the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be incapable of following God. But God is not going to give us a theology exam on Judgment Day. He is instead concerned about people turning from their sins. A student at UC Santa Barbara approached my Christian book table one day with a sly grin. He said, you know, I like to get high in a joint every once in a while, but I would never dream of setting up a table with a sign telling people that they had to get high on joints too. In other words, where did I get the nerve to say that what works for me, Jesus, must work for him as well or else? I said to him, if Jesus were merely some radical mind trip, I would see your point. But let me ask you something. If you knew the cure for cancer, would you share it with people? Well, after a bit of hesitation, he answered, of course. I said, well, would you agree that when we do discover the cure for cancer someday, that there will be only one cure? Well, I suppose. And on that day, when somebody claims to have this exclusive cure, could we not accuse the person of being closed-minded? After all, doesn't it take a lot of nerve to call just one treatment the cure for cancer? Maybe penicillin is the cure for cancer. Maybe vitamin C is the cure for cancer. Folks, Jesus is the cure for a disease far more deadly than cancer. So you're thinking, but is is sin really our fault? Okay, Bob, I can accept the definition of sin as selfishness, and I can understand why God wouldn't want us to live selfishly. But isn't it also true that the Bible talks about a sin nature? Isn't this something we are born with? Isn't this something we can't control? If so, then how can a loving God condemn us? Well, it is true that people are born with a sin nature. Human beings do not follow their consciences nearly as much as they should. And although we can certainly change our actions, we cannot change our thoughts and motives, the heart of the sin nature. I may hate feeling jealous. I may hate feeling bitter or angry or lustful, but there is no button on my side that I can push to make those feelings go away. I may have good feelings as well, but if I'm half clean and half dirty, I still need a shower. Now, the Apostle Paul did an excellent job of describing this condition. He says, we know the law is spiritual. He's talking here about the law of Moses. We know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. Believe it or not, Bob Siegel is aware that there may be one or two people who disagree with his opinions to offer your own comments on the topic at hand or to challenge Bob with a thought-provoking question, feel free to contact Bob on Facebook, Twitter, or questions at bobsiegel.net. Our theme, Christianity and its relationship to politics and pop culture, doing an all-Bible show today. And we're talking about the question, why is Jesus the only way to God? And part of that answer is because human beings are sinful and that's the only cure to our sin. But before we went to the break, our rhetorical skeptic friend 
says, well, we don't just have sinful actions according to the Bible. We have a sinful nature. And this nature was described very graphically by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. I started reading it, and I'll continue. He says, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, nor the evil I do not want to do. This I do. And that's something he had already said. It's so important he actually repeats it twice in the same passage. He says, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. Now, what exactly is this sin nature? Is this some kind of curse or whammy God physically puts on babies at the moment of birth? No. Our sin nature is referring to our separation from God. People are composed of body, soul, and spirit. The soul is yourself, your will, your thoughts, your personality. The spirit is a part of your soul, that part which is in tune with God and his morals through the human conscience. The very first human beings were created sinless, but with an ability to choose right from wrong. For all intents and purposes, they were born into fellowship with God. Another way to say it is that they were plugged into God. They were spiritually connected with him. When they later turned away from him in disobedience, God unplugged himself from people and unplugged himself from this world that he had given to people. Now, you will recall that these first human beings, Adam and Eve, were warned by God that they would die on the day they ate the forbidden fruit. And remember, that this is not the story of Snow White. It wasn't poison fruit. It wasn't magic fruit. It was just a way of testing their obedience. God could have said anything. It didn't have to be about fruit. He could have said, don't pull Eve's hair. He could have said, don't throw rocks in the pond. What he said to test them was, don't eat this fruit. Now, you will recall, though, that when they ate it, they did not actually die, that, and not at that moment, at least not physically, but all kinds of sudden internal changes took place as Adam and Eve experienced a shame they had never felt before. What happened, of course, is that they died spiritually. More specifically, their spirits died while their souls and bodies remained alive. Now, as children of Adam and Eve, we are all born unplugged. We are born into the condition they made for us. That is, our spirits exist, but in a dead or malfunctioning way. Although we still have a sense of God through the conscience, the separation keeps us from submitting completely to the influence of his spirit. As a result, men and women run their own lives, something God never intended for them to do. Consequently, we develop many sinful, selfish habits. That, along with the absence of God within, is what the Bible means by sin nature. Our rhetorical friend continues, but Bob, if I really inherited this nature from Adam, then God should not blame me. This wasn't my fault. Why should I pay for what some idiot did years ago? Who knows, if I had been there in the garden, I might not have eaten the forbidden fruit. First of all, Christ is the only one who paid for the idiot, and as a result, you need never pay. It is true that you and I were born with a sin nature, but it is not true that we would have acted contrary to Adam had the world only been fortunate enough to have one of us as the first human being. Adam acted on behalf of people as a species, doing what God knew any of us would have done. If it hadn't been him, it would have been me. If it hadn't been me, it would have been you. You're thinking, oh, come on, that's a very convenient thing to say, but I guess we'll never know, will we? Yes, we will. God has proven the point by giving us his law. Romans 5 says the law was added so that the trespass 
might increase. Now, what does that mean? Although my sin nature contains thoughts and feelings I cannot change apart from a supernatural working of God's Spirit, I am nevertheless painfully aware of many occasions where, without being compelled, I sinned anyway. This has been true in my Christian life, in fact, in spite of the Holy Spirit, who can teach me to turn away from sin if I'll only truly let him. Adam's trespass has been repeated time and time again. Therefore, although people are sinners by nature, thanks to Adam, they are also sinners by choice, thanks to themselves. Certainly things are now rearranged. Adam was surrounded by good, and he had one path to evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Today we are surrounded by evil, a negative Garden of Eden, if you will, with one path back to God, Jesus Christ. What is the difference between being with God and leaving him or being away from God and refusing to meet him? So then I am responsible for the sins I choose to commit, but I am not responsible for having been born with a sin nature. That I did not deserve, but neither did I deserve to be completely free from all sin, inward and outward, as a result of Jesus' death on the cross. This mercy, this too is undeserved. So as you can see, things even out. Paul continues in Romans 5, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass, he's talking about Adam's trespass, was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness, referring to Christ's act of righteousness, was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Now, many years ago, the famous evangelist Billy Graham, I remember when he spoke for the last time in San Diego, I said, we'll never see the likes of him again. He was in his 90s. Stadium was still packed. Hundreds and hundreds still came forward except Christ. He did pass away a few years ago. He's one of the few televangelists I've ever liked, as a matter of fact. Now, radio evangelists, they're great. But I have a problem with television evangelists. I did like Billy Graham. But anyway, years ago, he was a guest on the Donahue Show. You may not remember Donahue. He kind of created the television afternoon talk show as we know it. And Donahue was really raising uh, Billy Graham in a tongue-in-cheek fashion, Donahue was expressing displeasure over this Christian doctrine of an inherited sin nature that we're born with. And he said something to the effect of, I am unhappy about the way I was born. What can I do about that? At which point it was perfect. Graham says, if you're unhappy about the way you were born, what you need to do is become born again. Now, folks, a loving God does not want to send anybody to hell. This is the very reason Jesus came. It's not the message of Christianity that you're going to hell. It's the message of Christianity that God wants to save you from hell. Imagine God saying to himself, I love Sandra very much, but Sandra has sinned. and I cannot let her into my kingdom, for that would make my kingdom wicked. And that would make me wicked. No, the sin has to be paid for. Now, being without limitations, God already had a plan. Supposing I were to justly judge Sandra by completely destroying her and then... Supposing I were to create a brand new Sandra who is perfect, spotless, and sinless. In fact, supposing Sandra were spared the pain and torment of the experience, being conscious only of the positive transition. Now, this proposed solution to the paradox was literally fulfilled. 
by the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The cross is the justice and judgment and mercy and love of God combined. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, said he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Now, we, we've talked earlier about that phrase, born again. I know Christians bandy these phrases around, and they don't always explain it. And I know that can be very frustrating. Born again literally refers to what I'm talking about here. Our future on Judgment Day, when we will be raised from the dead and recreated body, soul, and spirit because of what Jesus did on the cross. Second Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Romans chapter 6 says, If we have been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Although this reality exists in our future, it is the present, the present to God. Now, why is it the present to God? Because he exists outside of time. Therefore, God tells us, the Bible is saying things about time and space years before quantum physicists were saying it. The Bible teaches that God is completely removed from time. So when God tells us to become born again now, what he means is view yourselves the way I view you, as a down payment for our future inheritance, future to us but present to God. God does two things for us to experience here in time and space in this life. First, he gives us a resurrected spirit, promising to transform the rest of us when we meet Jesus in heaven. It's like a down payment. I'll resurrect your spirit now. I'll resurrect the rest of you later. Second, he personally resides in our souls with his Holy Spirit. The fellowship of our new spirit and the Holy Spirit together give us a subjective sense that God has adopted us and we actually begin to think of him as a personal father. Romans 8 says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Hebrew chapter 12 says, How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Ephesians chapter 1 says, Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Yeah, but Bob, people must still choose this relationship, and according to the Bible, many won't, which means that although God doesn't want to, he will still send multitudes to hell. Why then did God give us a free will if he knew we would misuse it? Doesn't this make God responsible for the evil in the world along with the evil that will someday inhabit hell? Well, evidently being in God's image is considered an ideal quality characterized by certain freedom. The alternative is to be a programmed robot or a mindless animal. You may question your free will, but you will have a hard time convincing me you aren't grateful for it. Without this quality, you would not possess the unique personality and creativity that makes you a special individual. How many wars and revolutions have been fought in the name of freedom? Doesn't this say something about how people truly cherish their free will? Just as God knew that men and women would misuse their free wills, he also knew ahead of time that Christ would die for our sins. This projected forgiveness gave God the leeway to teach us through our own stupid mistakes as we learn to appreciate righteousness and use our free wills properly. I never appreciate good health until I get sick. 
In a similar manner, humans as a species acted like the prodigal son in Jesus' parable who insisted on leaving the security and protection of his father to make his own life in the world. We have seen the horrifying results of human life separated from God. Now, having experienced evil, we look toward a future day when paradise is restored. We have learned to appreciate goodness. This is not to say that evil was necessary or preferable. I'm merely describing the manner in which God taught us not to misuse our freedom by providing for us a vision of its ugly effects. The story of Adam and Eve is frequently referred to as a fairy tale. I used to view it that way myself until I made a careful study of the story brought about by an interesting discovery. Genesis 1 through 3 is the most logical explanation I have ever seen to account for this world's condition. This world is a paradise invaded. The world is a wonderful place. The world is a horrible place. You can go out to the beach. I'm going to go out to the beach tonight after this show. You can look at the sunset. You can look at the beauty. You can look at the waves. But on beaches, you also have hurricanes, tidal waves. In this world, we have sickness and disease. Human beings do wonderful things. Human beings create. There's procreation. There's love. There's poetry. There's buildings. There's computer programs. There are books. There are paintings. And yet human beings are responsible for greed, crime, bloodshed, bigotry. The world and the human beings inhabiting this world look like perfection invaded. Paradise invaded. Genesis 1 through 3 is an explanation that accounts for our world's condition. An invaded paradise. Genesis offers a reason for this picture. Ignore the Genesis account if you wish, but you only have to search for a similar explanation. The world was once a wonderful place, but people did not appreciate their paradise. They wanted to know what evil was. Where is God, I always hear, when wars and crimes kill people? Where is God when children starve to death? I have a better question. Where are people? The principles of love, kindness, and sharing originated from God. These are His commands. Suffering in the world does not convince me that God doesn't exist. Instead, it convinces me that God knew what He was talking about when He commanded us to feed the poor. When he said, thou shalt not kill, the devastating results of evil display crystal clear evidence that we should have obeyed God all along. God was being loving when he established guidelines and limitations. Yeah, but Bob, wouldn't these guidelines and limitations violate the very free will that God supposedly wants us to have? Well, limitations do not obliterate our will. They exist as a choice. So you're thinking, well, why should the limitations of our free will And remember, the ability to do right includes the ability to do wrong, or it's not a real ability. God didn't create evil. Evil isn't something you look at in a test tube. Good and evil are choices we make. So God's going to hold us accountable someday. And you think, well, why doesn't God just destroy all evil now? Well, who would be left? In God's eyes, you too are evil. Should he do a thorough job by starting with you? Do you want him to wipe you out? Now, evil has its varying manifestations. We, what it means we have an evil side to our nature. No one person is completely free of evil, though. If we want God to be merciful with us, we must live with the fact that he will offer this grace to everybody. Rest assured, God will someday deal drastically and adequately with all evil. The person who does not accept Christ will pay the penalty for his or her own sin. There can never be a more final, deadly judgment of evil than total ultimate separation from the joys of life and the presence of God. When we remember that humans with their free wills are graciously granted an entire lifetime 
to either accept or reject Jesus, we can understand that for a designated period of time, evil must be allowed. Since not everybody will accept his grace, and since evil still must be dealt with, we are left with an affirmation of hell. Now, our purpose in the beginning of this conversation was to explain the relationship between God's justice and mercy. Although God delights in creatures of free will, such freedom has certain responsibilities. The violation of these responsibilities results in sin, which the Bible defines as selfishness. Humans are sinners by nature and by choice. Through Jesus and his sacrifice, all sin can be done away with. That was the teaching of his gospel. The authority of the message comes from the fantastic truth that Jesus was actually God who at a time in history took on the form of a man. These claims, incredible as they are, will be considered by anyone with a truly open mind. Thank you for joining us for the Bob Siegel Show podcast. Visit cgmradio.com slash bob to subscribe to the show.